0: Good morning. You know that a uh, professor is preaching when you get a handout. And I just want you to be assured there will not be a quiz, OK? So. And so that means you are spared from asking me if what I'm going to say is going to be on the quiz. <clears throat> One of my favorite churches, apart from Church of the Redeemer, is sacre Coeur in Paris. Now, when you enter most Catholic churches, the first thing that you see is a large crucifix. But when you enter Sacré-Cœur, you see a massive mosaic of the risen Lord Jesus ascended in glory. This is one of the largest mosaics in the world. And here we have Jesus clothed in a white robe, arms outstretched, exalted, worshipped, and adored by the heavenly host and redeemed humanity. This morning, I want to consider this aspect of Jesus' life, his ascension which we don't often talk about. Uh, Throughout the liturgical year, we have specific times that focus on Jesus' incarnation, his crucifixion, his resurrection. But sometimes we leave it there without moving to the next step, and that is his ascension and exaltation. This past Thursday was Feast of the Ascension. If you missed it, that's okay. Um, So this is a good time to focus on Jesus' ascension. And I think we need this perspective right now at this time. So to set the stage for this, I want to spend some time this morning in the book of Revelation. You probably figured that out from the handout. Um, Now, as you've probably noticed also, we've been cycling through Revelation in our liturgical readings for the last month. Now, we all know that this is not the easiest part of the Bible, okay? We've already been told that. But if you were just to read the readings, the lectionary readings... You might not figure that out. You get Revelation 1, the risen Lord Jesus, Revelation 5, the throne room, Revelation 7, the great multitude, Revelation 21 and 22, the new heavens and the new earth. The good stuff. What's not to love about that? But we know that there are some other parts of Revelation that are not so easy to read and understand scenes of violence and horror. What do we do about these passages? In fact, this is part of the reason why I think many people avoid revelation. So what I want to say, to think about, is how do these passages align with this uh, picture of the risen Lord Jesus? And it's really my prayer this morning that this juxtaposition between the violent images and the visions of the risen Lord Jesus will offer a deep encouragement that we find (coughs) for us today, excuse me, as we're confronted with horror and violence on a daily basis. I can only just mention a few, but we think about the mass shootings in Buffalo, in Laguna uh, Woods, in Uvalde, Texas, over a million deaths from COVID, uh, the brutality of the war in Ukraine. And on top of these things are the ongoing injustices that occur every single day, and the anxiety and the stress that we are feeling even right now at Church of the Redeemer. So in this regard, I want to say I really appreciate Pastor Amanda's sermon last week and the great words of assurance that we found there. So my prayer this morning is that we will find great encouragement in Christ's ascension and the overall book of the message of the book of Revelation. So to that end, I want to do something different. If you like it, you can tell me today. If you don't like it, you can say something next week because I'll be out of town. (laughs) Um, but what I want you to see is just kind of a 30,000-foot flyover to get an understanding of some of the things that are going on in this part of Scripture that is often really misunderstood. Before we get take off, fasten your seatbelts, but before we take off, I want to give you a couple of three things, really, that will help orient the way that you think about the book of Revelation. And I always tell my students, don't get bogged down in the details. Don't get bogged down in all the imagery. Stay focused on the large message. So here are three things that I want us to keep in mind. And this is really more core than actually going through the outline. First, the transcendent heavenly reality that we cannot see is more real than the present earthly reality that we do see. That is essential. This is hard to grasp, but Revelation is a powerful critique of the counterfeit kingdom that was the Roman Empire the Romans boasted that they were the center of the universe and that the universe was sustained by their very presence and rule. They boasted of the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome that they provided. But this was peace at the cost of brutal suppression and violent, deadly acts. This is a false narrative to the core. So Revelation exposes this counterfeit narrative for what it truly is, a false empire that gained its power through violence and deception versus the true kingdom that has authority because of sacrifice, love, and truth. Over and over, Revelation reminds us that there is one king and one kingdom. Every other claim to power and authority is counterfeit. And again and again, this reality is hard to see, but it is more real than the present reality that we're experiencing. Second, there is a thin, permeable boundary between the heavenly realm and our present earthly experience. Celtic theology talks about this as thin places. These are the places where the boundary between the seen and the unseen is porous. Places where we encounter the mystery of God's presence. We often think that the risen Lord Jesus is up there. And if he's up there, he's not down here. But this is not what Revelation is saying. Revelation shows us very clearly that the exalted Christ is actually in our midst. Right here, right now in ways that we could never imagine. The boundary between the seen and the unseen is thankfully porous. Third, Revelation is the culmination of the Bible. I won't go through the entire Bible, don't worry. But throughout the Bible, we see that when God initiates, it always brings about life and redemption. We see this in Genesis 1. After each act of creation, we are told, It is good. Indeed, it is very good. When God initiates, it is always life-giving. So when we see the disturbing images of violence and judgment in Revelation, we need to realize that God's judgment is always in response to human sin and violence. God never acts capriciously. He is not the big thumb in the sky waiting to squash us at all. Instead, as I frequently tell my students, given all of these things, the horrific expressions of violence that we see, it is actually far scarier to think of a world in which there is no judgment for evil, in which there is no accounting or reckoning. We do not have the perspective to know why things happen, why events and circumstances take place that are so far beyond our comprehension. And in fact, they are evil. But we can be assured that God's response to that is perfect judgment in his perfect timing, which is seldom our timing. So to summarize, the heavenly realm that we can't see is more real than what we experience here and now. The boundary between the heavenly and the earthly is more porous than we ever could have imagined. And God responds to evil in his perfect justice and timing. Now, perhaps a two word summary at this point might be helpful. Just two words God wins. Amen. <laughs> Let's do call and response. Uh, evil doesn't win, injustice doesn't win, violence doesn't win, even death doesn't win. God wins. And indeed, he has already won. Now, I'm not saying this somehow makes everything better when we proclaim that God wins. We are never, ever supposed to call evil good. And it is essential to lament the truly horrific things that happen. But the ultimate reality is that God wins. Jesus is exalted and is reigning. And that makes all the difference in our perspective right now. So, with this in place, I want to do the flyover of the book of Revelation. And I did give you a handout just so you can keep somewhat oriented. Um, Professors don't have to look at the handout. You're you're exempted. Um, So, we start out in chapter 1 with the risen Lord Jesus. Now, what's wonderful about this is that right away, Revelation starts out focusing on the reality of the risen Christ. All of the symbols that are presented to us underscore his complete victory absolute sovereignty and victory. Um, I also want to point out that Revelation is an epistle. It's from John to the seven churches. And these are seven historical churches. Seven obviously meaning complete, but seven real historical churches. But they also represent the church throughout history and around the world. So that brings us to the next part, Revelation 2 and 3, where we get messages to the seven churches. And we are invited to overhear or eavesdrop on the messages given to all the churches. I'd like to say, if you've been at church long enough or if you've been in ministry long enough, there's something for everyone in the seven messages. Okay, then we move on to what we saw uh, preached on by Ethan, which is the great throne room vision in chapters 4 and 5. Now in chapter 4, we see a picture of God the Creator. But if we look carefully at chapter 4, we don't obviously see redeemed humanity present. That leads us to chapter 5, where we see the one on the throne with a scroll. And John is inconsolable because he is afraid that the one who could open that scroll, who is worthy to open that scroll, will not be found. Opening that scroll is another way of talking about the completion of God's purposes and plans that will bring redeemed humanity into the throne room which is why at the end of Revelation 5, we are praising God the Redeemer because of what Jesus has done. Now, there's a little thing that happens in Revelation where we are hearing one thing but seeing something else. So in Revelation chapter 5, we hear, Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And we're expecting a military force. But what do we see? A slain lamb. Once again, over and over, Revelation is exposing false narratives. It's not military victory that brings about God's purposes. It's the sacrificial life of the Lamb. Now, there's another big section, and this is the scary section of Revelation. And this is really kind of all compressed. I'm putting it under the judge, God's just judgment. The six seals, so uh, the four horsemen, okay, in Revelation uh, chapter four, uh, 6... Um, I I was hesitating to say this, but I'm going to say it. So I was teaching a PhD seminar, and it's uh, the four disciplines, Old Testament, New Testament, church history, systematics, four professors in the classroom teaching students how to integrate. And somebody, I don't know how this happened, found an image of the four horsemen and Photoshopped all of us in. So I decided that on the last day of class, we would wear the appropriate colors. And I do want you to know that I was the pale green horse of death. <laughs> so here we have it. Revelation enacted. But the seals, I, is the way that I'm gonna just quickly talk about the God's judgment, the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls, I think are three perspectives on the same reality. And so the seals are showing us what happens When God's restraining hand is removed, what does it look like when human sin and evil has nothing to stop it? That's really chapter six, and it's horrific. Now, sometimes we may be thinking that we're living that, and to a certain extent, we can see that. We can see approximations of that. But even in something as horrible as Ukraine, I don't... I you know how many of you remember Miriam Charter, who went to this church a while ago, but she's been posting some things on Facebook that are amazing accounts of the hand of God in the midst of the war in Ukraine. So God has not removed his hand. but Revelation 6 gives us a glimpse into the sheer horror of God's restraining hand being taken away, which is another aspect of his judgment. Revelation 7, one of the great things about preaching is I get to inflict all of my views about Revelation on you, but Revelation 7, I think, is two views of the people of God. The 144,000 is probably recalling something of a military census, so the people of God on earth in a battle, and we are in a battle, right? That is juxtaposed by the multitude, the great heavenly multitude that our dear brother Felipe preached on a couple weeks ago. Okay, that leads us then to uh, a big section I'm going to kind of jump over um, with the the two witnesses and the temple and all those things. But what I want to talk about very quickly is Revelation 12, which gives us that wonderful vision of the woman and the great red dragon. And what's wonderful about the woman is I think that's a picture of the people of God, crowned with glory, with dominion. But it's also a picture that the Messiah, Jesus, comes forth from the community of God's people. In verse 5, you get the entire life of Jesus compressed into one verse. His birth, his resurrection, his ascension. Boom. And what's interesting is that the red dragon is right there poised to take the male child once he's born. But the imagery that's given to us of him being snatched up into heaven is to show that there was never any question about his victory. Though Satan tried many times to defeat him, the outcome was never, ever in question. I mention the red dragon because the red dragon is a horrific parody of God the Father, which leads us to chapter 13, where we get the beast from the sea and the beast from the land. The beast from the sea is a horrific parody of God the Son. The beast from the land is a horrific parody of God the Spirit. The point that I want to make in this is to understand that Satan cannot do anything except to undo what God has done. God alone creates. Satan can only murder. God alone proclaims truth. Satan can only deceive and distort. Those are powerful, but God alone has all power. Okay, I'm going to skip over the rest of the judgment. You can kind of read that on your own. In chapters 17 to 20, we get a shift and we get a contrast between the woman on the beast and the bride of Christ. The woman imagery here is probably in somewhat uh, indebted to the goddess Roma, which the Romans worshipped as kind of the uh, infusing spirit behind much of the Roman Empire. She is projected as a horrific seductress who delights and is intoxicated by bloodshed. But that is juxtaposed by the bride of Christ, who is dressed in righteous deeds. The contrast in these chapters could not be more profound. Okay, we will skip over the millennium, just because there's not enough time to talk about that. But Revelation 20 gives us the assurance that evil is eradicated. So this now brings us to Revelation 21 and 22. And as I put on the outline there, this is the new Jerusalem, the city of God, but Revelation 21 makes it entirely clear that the New Jerusalem is the people and the place. We are going to be, and we are now, the New Jerusalem, the people and the place, the Bride of Christ. Okay, this is a lot to cover. What I want you to see is that Revelation is a juxtaposition between the horror and the violence that is taking place on the earth that we can see, And the reality that Christ is exalted and risen, ascended, that we can't see as clearly. Constantly a juxtaposition between those two. And as I said, I want to just revisit some of the things I started out with. This transcendent heavenly reality that we cannot see is more real than our earthly present experience. That's so hard to grasp. But this is not all there is. Praise God. Hallelujah. And really, the outworking of God's plans and promises is the reality. Second, there is a thin, permeable boundary between this heavenly realm and our earthly present experience. I pray that we have eyes that will begin to see the unseen, eyes that will begin to recognize the transcendent work of our risen Lord Christ in our lives. Because that boundary is very thin, For those who have eyes to see. Finally, Revelation is the culmination of the Bible. And again, I want to underscore that when God initiates, it's always life-giving. But God does respond in justice to human sin and violence. And his judgment and justice will prevail. Now, I want to conclude by adding two more reflections. And earlier this week, Pastor Amanda sent me a blog by uh, Dr. Kimberly Wagner, who's a professor at the Lutheran School of Theology. And her blog was specifically focused on the Ascension. So I've adapted a couple of her suggestions, but credit goes to uh, Dr. Wagner as my inspiration. First, I think that the Ascension helps us to really know how to lament the evil that we see. Because it reminds us that the evil that we see and the lament of that is a recognition that things are not the way they should be. This is not what God intended. And God will prevail. But it also reminds us that Jesus is in our midst. As Again, as I said, he's not up there, over there, out there. He's right here, risen, glorified. I mean, think about the post-resurrection experiences where Jesus could just walk through locked doors. There's a different reality there. He is in our midst. He is with us. If you go back to Revelation uh, chapter 1, you'll see a picture of the lampstands, the opening uh, revelation of Jesus, and he is among the lampstands. Later on, we find at the end of chapter 1 that the lampstands are the churches. So a very powerful picture that Jesus is among us. He is among the lampstands. Second. I think in a very real way we can draw comfort from the Lord's prayer, praying that his kingdom would come and that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. In light of what we've seen in Revelation, we can pray that we recognize our one true king and his true kingdom in the midst of the numerous counterfeit narratives about power and reality that surround us daily. Rather than becoming overcome with despair and a sense of hopelessness, we are bold to pray that this kingdom will come, that this king's will will be done now and forever. This is the boldness and the confidence that comes from focusing on the ascension of Christ. He is utterly victorious, exalted even in the midst of the violence and the evil around us. His perfect will And righteous justice will prevail. Evil does not win, violence does not win, despair does not win, death does not win. God wins. God wins. The ascension boldly attests to this transcendent reality which is more real and more certain than anything else we could ever imagine. And I would like to say that as a bold act of defiance to the counterfeit narratives that are around us, we proclaim the Lord's Prayer and we proclaim this truth. Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. Come, Lord Jesus.